Welcome to Change Catalysts at the Growing Edge with your host, Carol McClelland-Fields. Within each show, Carol and her guests explore topics that give coaches, healers, and other change catalysts new concepts, tools, and insights that open up opportunities to flourish personally, professionally, and financially. And now, your host, Carol McClelland-Fields. Hello and welcome. I'm Carol McClelland-Fields, your host. In this episode of Change Catalyst at the Growing Edge, my guest Nick Turner and I will be exploring the Enneagram as a tool for change catalysts and their clients. Through his work, Nick helps us learn how to use the Enneagram in an intuitive, perceptual way for direct, real-time insights into ourselves, the people around us, and our experience of life and change. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. It's good to be here. I always start the show with your origin story. What is the story about how you discovered Enneagram? Well, to really understand my story, we have to go quite a ways back to my early childhood. See, I was quite a nerd in school. I got bullied a lot, got beat up a few times, and did not understand people. I really felt confused by those complicated humans all around. I read psychology books. They didn't make any sense to me. Through high school, I was still a nerd, and I decided to find work that didn't involve social skills because (laughs) I wasn't very good at that. I spent 33 years in the computer industry and uh, had a talent at programming, so uh, I did pretty well, but I still didn't understand people. Computers were great, but that was a whole big part of reality that was missing from my life. In the late 80s, I discovered a system called the Enneagram, which is a shape with nine points. It actually maps human personalities. It's much more than that, but one of its greatest uses today in our world is to serve as a scaffolding, a way of understanding human personality types. It turns out that through the Enneagram system, there are nine different personality types, and the Enneagram provides a structure that maps those personalities and explains them and explains a whole lot about all the different types and how they interact with each other, how they relate to each other, how they reflect each other's traits and each other's talents and traps. It just truly opened up the world of people to me as something I could understand. I was able for the first time to create a model in my mind of some other person who was different than me. In short, I learned how to find out what it was like to be somebody else, which is pretty cool. In 1991, I began attending retreats with a teacher that I found named Don Riso and his associate, Russ Hudson. He really helped me to open it up and see it for more than just a system of personality types. It turns out the Enneagram goes a lot deeper than personality. It's actually a model of processes, and it applies to a whole lot of things. I like to use the example of cooking food in a kitchen. There's an Enneagram for that, kind of like there's an app for that. There's an Enneagram that describes all sorts of things. The one thing in common through all of these different systems that the Enneagram applies to is that there's an intelligent, self-aware entity that is trying to accomplish something. And the Enneagram describes the process of doing that. From the first idea you get to starting to make a plan to actually executing, implementing, putting something out there in the world, 
receiving some accolades or some kind of payment for it or some kind of response from the world and then back to a state where you've finished your accomplishing the task and now you're resting. And so the Enneagram talks about that whole cycle, that whole process. Uh, not just about personality types, but of course the different personality types approach the process of accomplishing goals in different ways. And so we can also understand how different people will respond to that same task. I went to these retreats with Riso and Hudson. Eventually I became certified to teach the Enneagram. That was in 1992. To this day, the Enneagram serves as a template for me for my interactions with people and my interactions with the world. Even now I continue to learn new things about the Enneagram, which is why I call myself a student, not a teacher really. And uh, just in the last few days I've discovered some new threads that I'll be adding to my Enneagram materials. And, I won't be talking about that just yet, but it <laughs> continues to evolve. It continues to open up. It's like a lotus. You, you never stop seeing new things. Yes. And it's very insightful. The conversations you and I have had about the Enneagram have been very helpful to me personally and professionally, mm -hmm. and I always learn new things when we talk about it. And so. I always enjoy talking about it. <laughs> yes, I know you do. So how has your life been shaped by the Enneagram? The first most obvious thing that happened was that other people were transformed from impenetrable, scary mysteries into real, feeling, understandable beings worthy of love and respect. And I began to be able to understand other people. I have been able to learn how to use the Enneagram intuitively. A lot of people use it analytically. They try to tease out all the facts of the situation. and. Mm -hmm get it all figured out and, and then they make an educated guess. Well, there's another way of using the Enneagram. You can actually directly see Enneagram types in people and you can learn to recognize it almost instantaneously in many cases. Not always, but in many cases. So for me, that was a tremendous breakthrough. Also, I became able to see the ways that I personally, based on my own Enneagram type, had thought, felt, behaved, that maybe were hurting me and hurting others and to evolve better ways of thinking, feeling, and acting. And I talk about this a lot in the workshops. This is what I call talents and traps. The idea that our personality traits, which are described by the Enneagram, every trait is like a coin. On one side of the coin, you have a tremendous talent that's magical and remarkable and amazing. Well, that same talent, if it's used incorrectly or if it's overused or ignored or denied, it becomes a vicious evil trap that can literally make us crazy and t totally destroy our ability to deal with the world. Every talent has a trap and every trap has a talent. When I began to see that, then that tremendously opened it further and gave me a basis to actually teach the system. There was something there that I could transmit to others. I also, through the study of the Enneagram as a process tool, not necessarily as a personality system, I became able to understand new aspects of the universe, life as a whole, seeing new patterns, how events unfold and how evolution proceeds, how the Enneagram actually models evolution as well as human personality. And the Enneagram is a very powerful tool for dealing with change, which is one reason why we're talking today. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Since certification in 92, I began offering group and individual sessions doing Enneagram gatherings and talks. And it's an important part of my life work. It's, it's not all of it, but it's an important part of mm -hmm. what I do. Yes, for sure. 
you've talked about how it's impacted you and how it became this door opener, this mm -hmm. world opener for you. World opener, that's <laughs> a good one. We can extrapolate why you're so passionate about this work, but why don't you talk about what makes you passionate about the Enneagram? Well, the, the first thing is it changed my life. I mean, it turned completely turned around my interactions with people. I went from a wallflower afraid to go to parties to somebody who could actually go to a party. I, I may still choose to stand in a corner for a while because I'm not really all that extroverted, but at least I could talk to people and understand what was going on in the interaction. In a few years of study, I was able to relate to others in a radically different way. I understood myself better, and I saw the world in a new way through the jewel of the Enneagram. You could say the lens of the Enneagram. It's more like a jewel with facets. Mm -hmm. I was captivated by the beauty and elegance of the Enneagram and how it is deeply embedded in the structure of reality. It's, it's everywhere if you know how to look for it. And I was delighted by the opportunity to share the knowledge and to transmit the intuitive approach to the Enneagram, which is my specialty. And it's deeply rewarding to see fellow Enneagram students have their lives transformed the way mine was to a greater or lesser degree once somebody really understands the Enneagram, it affects how you interact with people and how you see the world. Yes. It's very powerful. And how you interact with yourself. Right. That's how you self-manage or self-evolve. You, you could argue that the main most useful use of the Enneagram is for self-understanding. Yeah. The next part of the show is always about deepening the conversation. And in this case, we're deepening the conversation about change and the Enneagram. And we're going to start with... The Enneagram, because many people aren't that familiar right. with what it is. What the heck is it? Yeah, what the heck is it? <laughs> so I wanted to just alert listeners that we do have a handout on the webpage, both on my site, flourishasachangecatalyst.com forward slash radio, and also on the show page on inspirednewsradio.com under my host name, Carol McClellan Fields. It's a very, very deep, multifaceted jewel. Correct. And so it's not possible to do a whole explanation in a 50-minute show. Right. We couldn't even scratch the surface. So in this show, we want to introduce some concepts and some dynamics to give the listeners a feeling for right. the power of it. But please know that it's not complete. This is not right. all there is to know. There are many, many other facets that we're not even mm -hmm. going to touch on today in this brief description. But, and why don't we start with the diagram and talk us through that and what we need to know just to get a sense of what the Enneagram is mm -hmm. and what we can learn from that shape. The handout has four Enneagrams on it. At the top in black, we have the large Enneagram, which shows the shape itself and the nine points, and the circle around the shape. You may notice that there is a triangle in the center from points nine to three to six, and that's the triangle. And on the small little Enneagram on the left, you can see the triangle in blue. And then there's another shape, the one, four, two, eight, five, seven shape, which is called the hexad. It's like a twisted hexagon with a gap at the bottom. Those two shapes work together to define the relationships in the Enneagram. The triangle is the foundation of the shape, and it represents something very profound about reality, about the universe, and about process. 
it has three points. At the top you have point nine. Point nine is like all and nothing. It's like form and void. It's the universe in a resting state. It's, it's an egg waiting to hatch. Point nine is the only point on the Enneagram that doesn't have a mirror image reflecting point. Point one has point eight, point two has point seven, three has six, four has five, nine stands alone at the top. It's special. It's the origin and it's the destination. From point nine, we go to point three. Point three represents instantiation. It represents the creation of an individual consciousness. Point three is a new being, freshly created, wanting to go out and be somebody and accomplish something and create and do and act and achieve. That's what point three energy is all about. It's about achievement. It's about accomplishment. It's about standing out as an individual, as one solitary person separate from the universe. That's point three. Point six is where we bring in other entities, other people. Community happens at point six. From a single person, we now have a team. Point six is all about team. And point six type people are all about teamwork. And they're team players. So point six is bringing in of community. And from community, we go back to point nine, which is back to rest, back to the cosmic oneness, or you could call it cosmic goo, which fills the entire universe and is all and nothing. And that's point nine. It's very strange and metaphysical. Point nine, as I say, is a special point. So that's the triangle at the center of the system. The hexad points represent different variations of each of the triangle points. If you look at the little diagram on the right side, it shows body triad, heart triad, and head triad. So points 9, 8, and 1 are all about physical being. They're about your presence in the universe or your lack of presence in the universe. And all of the main issues of 9, 8, and 1 are about physical being. Point 3, about the individual, is all about emotions and how it feels to be somebody. And the 2 and the 4 represent two different interpretations of emotion. And we'll get into a little bit more into what that means. Point six is about community, and points five and seven represent different aspects of that, and point six is also about intellect, about thought, about the mind. So we have the body triad at the top with eight, nine, and one. We have the heart triad at the right with two, three, and four, and emotions. And we have the head triad, five, six, and seven, which is all about intellect and thought. Now, within each triad, the two hexad points in the case of nine, that's point one and point eight, represent inwardness and outwardness of that point. So point nine is about physicality, connection or disconnection from the physical world. Point one turns that inward and attempts to be perfect, attempts to create the perfect physical being in themselves. Point eight turns it outward and attempts to control the universe, to create the perfect outer universe through control. Point nine, the center point of that triad, either tends to move from connection to disconnection and back. There's a two-natured state to point nine. You're either connected, you're physically present, or you're disconnected and you're not in the universe at all. So like a toggle. Like a toggle, right. Mm -hmm. The personalities on the triangle points tend to evolve in bursts, in spurts. People whose personalities are on the hexad points tend to evolve more incrementally, more smoothly. Neither way is bad or good. 
It's just the way people work. In the heart triad, point three is either the most connected or the least connected from their emotional being. Point two expresses emotion outwardly with an attempt to get the universe to be the way they want it to be. So they express emotion outwardly to do that. Point four turns that emotion inward and attempts to find meaning within very emotionally, the very deep feeling of passion. In the head triad, point six is either most connected or the most disconnected from thinking. Sixes can sometimes connect in ill-considered ways and they're not really thinking, but if they're in their head, then they're some of the most intelligent and trustworthy and faithful and reliable people on the Enneagram. Point five turns intellect inward and inwardly creates models of the universe to analyze. And point seven turns the intellect outward and spews their intelligence out into the world. And they tend to turn into entertainers or life of the party kind of people. And that's just a very quick, quick survey of the three triads. But you can see already that we have three different main parts of the being. We have the head, the heart, and the body, which are three really important aspects of what it is to be a human. And those three aspects of humanity get interpreted in three different ways in each of the three triads. And that gives you nine personality types. There's a thing called the law of three, which is what the Enneagram is really based on. You apply the law of three once, and you go from cosmic unity to the triangle, nine, three, six. You apply it once more, and you each of the points on the triangle splits into three, and you have the Enneagram. You may notice that there's a gap at the bottom of the Enneagram and that we call the crucible gap or the spark gap. It relates to the alchemy, where you take the base metal and you put it into a crucible and you weld it shut and you throw it in the fire and you let it cook. And while you're letting it cook, something goes on inside that little crucible. You take it out of the fire and let it cool down and break it open and you find gold. Or at least that's what the alchemists wanted to do. It's not physically possible, but on a metaphysical level, on a personality level, that really is how it works. Yes. Another aspect of the Enneagram that's very important to understand is that it's not a static symbol and being a particular personality type, like being a two or being a four or being a seven, there's a tremendous amount of dynamic range. And we also have something called the levels of balance or the levels of health. At the high end of the levels of health, you have somebody who is expressing all of their talents and not falling into any of the associated traps. You're basically talking about an enlightened master. The peak of any of the nine types is a state of sainthood or a state of prophethood, something that's truly miraculous and actually goes beyond the physical world. It enters into metaphysical realms of wonderfulness. <laughs> and obviously, and I, maybe I don't have to say this, but obviously there's nothing bad or good about being any one of the nine types. The sainthood for each of the nine types is unique and special and really miraculous. At the other end of the spectrum of balance, you have complete psychotic breakdown. You have people who are totally out of touch with everything. And there are nine distinctive ways to become psychotically insane. Most people fall somewhere in the middle. And of course, it's good for personality to let go of the traps and to begin to manifest the talents. One of my main messages in this particular aspect of the Enneagram is that it's not something you have to try to do, but you do have to see, you have to be aware, you have to observe. And if you observe yourself falling into your traps, 
then that's enough right there. Just mm -hmm. see it and see it again and see it again. And pretty soon the trap stops. It changes, it transforms. And instead of using your talent in a way that traps you, you become free, you become able to use your talent in a way that benefits you and others and the universe. So that's the talents and traps, levels of health and balance. Now there's one other thing that's really important to understand. If you look at the bottom little Enneagram on the handout, you'll see some little arrows. There are blue arrows around the hexad and red arrows around the triangle. Those arrows are called the directions of disintegration. And what that means is, let's say I'm a five down there at the lower left. I fall into a trap by misusing one of my talents. If it gets worse and I continue to fall further and further down the spectrum of health, I will show not only the worst traits of type five, but also the worst traits of type seven, which is the point along the direction of the arrow from five. It's like allowing myself to fall down a hill. It's really easy to fall into your traps. And when you do, you go down along with the arrow towards your point of disintegration. However, you don't have to go that way. You can go the other way. If you are aware of your traps and you see them when they happen, and you do that enough, pretty soon your traps will begin to manifest more as the talents than as the traps. And what happens then is with an effortless quality, you begin to bubble up against the arrow. It's like bubbles rising through water. If I'm a five, then I will bubble up towards type eight. And I will show not only the best traits of type five, because I'm using my talents in the ways they're supposed to be used, but I will also gain access to some of the tremendous talents of type eight. Now, I haven't talked about what those talents are or what the traps might be. I'm not sure how much time we have. Yeah, we're not going to be able but, to go into that detail. But just in the one case of five going to eight, one of the talents of type five is to have a model of the universe. One of the traps around that model of the universe is if your model is wrong. If you are making erroneous models of the world, then you're not going to be able to get along very well in the world, <laughs> depending on what's wrong with your model. But when a five learns to correctly model the world, it brings in a sense of confidence because for the first time, perhaps, their model of the world is actually making correct predictions about what the world is going to do. For me, I believe I'm a five. I think I might be a five. One can never be totally sure. But if I am a five, then that model of the world will give me great confidence. And in fact, that is what happened to me when I learned the Enneagram. I had a model of the world that actually worked for me. The Enneagram gave me great confidence, and I was able to do something after that that I could not have done before, which is I was able to go out into the world and take charge, and I was able to create Enneagram workshops and bring people in and talk to them and walk around in front of the room in charge of the room, and that is one of the great talents of type 8, is to be in charge, to be the master of something. So there's a natural flow to these arrows. As a type 5, if I become better and better at doing the things that fives do well, then I gain access to a new level of things that I can do, a new level of talents that come in from type eight. As I learned my own talent and understood the traps, I was able to stay more focused, have choice about how I was gonna to respond to something that I didn't quite understand before. Right. And that has really improved the quality of my life in general. And it wasn't that long of a conversation We've mm -hmm. gone back to it a couple of times just to get more nuances. It's a very fascinating tool to have 
an understanding of your own talents and traps right to see how you're best going to interact right. with the world i feel like i need to mention again this is not about making an effort it's right. not like cramming for a test it's not like straining to raise a barbell it's nothing like that it's just about seeing it's just about perceiving and observing if you perceive and observe how your talents are manifesting whether they're talents or traps or something in between that's all you need to do you don't need to do anything else just see it and you will guarantee if, if you see it it'll change it'll evolve it'll morph and you will change yes. just by observing and seeing yourself being aware being aware of the talents mm -hmm. and traps yes and i would totally agree with that earlier you mentioned that a lot of enneagram teachers use more of an analytical mm -hmm. system to figure out how somebody is a particular type right. we haven't really talked about wings but wings are a flavor of the type right taking in one of the other yeah. points on either side of the type you talk about how each type wing combination is a different flavor right it's mm -hmm. a different way to think about a typing system right and i just wanted to bring in that intuitive side to this conversation well one of the beautiful things about the enneagram as opposed to some of the other personality typology systems is the enneagram in my view, actually corresponds to something real. The Enneagram was not an invention. It was a discovery. There's a big difference. A discovery is something that's real, that's out there, that suddenly comes to light and suddenly you see it. Enneagram teachers tend to use an analytical approach. They tend to try to break the system down into lots of little pieces. And that's a very effective way to teach it because people's minds work that way. But the Enneagram is not something that works best when it's broken into pieces. There is another way to look at the Enneagram, an intuitive way of seeing it. When you develop Enneagram intuition, then instead of taking somebody apart to figure out what type they are, you just look at them and you taste it. And that taste is distinctive and unique and individual. Of course, everybody's different and no two people taste the same, but it's something that can't be described if I hold out in front of you a tangerine and an orange, and I say, well, describe the difference of the flavors of tangerine and orange, you can try. It's a very hard thing to do. But if I let you taste the tangerine, and then you taste the orange, and you go back and forth, taste the two, you can tell the difference. And you learn to recognize. If I come back to you a week later and I say, here's a fruit, is this a tangerine or an orange? You just need to smell it or taste it, and you know right away, because you've tasted that before. Mm -hmm. The intuitive approach to the Enneagram creates a new sense mode, a new way of perceiving that when you look at somebody and you interact with this person, you taste the flavor of their personality instantly and fully and completely. Now, it doesn't always work the first time, especially as you get started. Sometimes it takes a while to taste the flavor of a person. And it's especially difficult with very advanced people, somebody who's very high on the level of balance, somebody who's very healthy, somebody who's very integrated, it's really hard sometimes to taste their flavor because they manifest the best traits of multiple types. Mm -hmm. They've integrated some of them all the way around the Enneagram and they're loving and they're kind and they're intelligent and they have great models of the universe and they're also completely present in the universe and they've achieved and they've accomplished and they've reached into themselves and found the origin of their feelings and all of these represent Enneagram talents and they've got it all. Mm -hmm. And so how do you know what type they are? <laughs> it takes a long time sometimes to see that. Yeah. By contrast, if somebody is very unhealthy, 
it can also sometimes be hard to tell because they've disintegrated and so they've mm. they've shown some of the traits of their disintegration type but usually it's a little easier and people in the middle you can usually see what type they are because they have some of the talents and some of the traps of their type and those show and they show not only in their actions in the way that they interact with other people but also in their face in their body in the way that they stand the way that they talk, the way that they look with their eyes. There are so many little things. An analytical teacher will take those all apart. And we do that in our workshops too. We use the analytical approach as well because it's profoundly important. But there's another aspect to it, and that's the gestalt. When you see that person, and yes, you notice all the little things, but you may not notice them consciously. You get that flavor. You taste that flavor, and there you are. Oh, you're a three with a four wing, I think, maybe. That's another thing. Never be sure. I don't tell people what types they are. And I tell people, you need to find it for yourself. You need to learn for yourself what type you are. And don't ever be sure. I always qualify if I say, well, I think I might be a five. I'm pretty sure I'm a five. But, you know, I've been looking at myself for a lot of years now with the Enneagram <laughs> in mind. But I never make it absolutely certain. I always try to say, if I am a five... I think I am, but if I am, then such and such is true. And I encourage students to do the same thing. It's never claim, I'm a three, or I'm a six, or I'm a four. No, don't do that. I think I might be a three. I think I might be a four. And the same thing when, when you're talking to other people. We don't tell people what types they are. It's not good Enneagram etiquette to tell people what types they are. We can ask people questions about themselves, and we can ask people questions about their experience of their own type but I don't tell people. The experience of finding out for yourself is really valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. As we bring change into this conversation, now mm -hmm. that we have a, an understanding and overview of the Enneagram itself, as we've talked about this, it's become clear that each type with their wing mm -hmm. will respond to change differently. And obviously we can't go around the entire Enneagram right. and talk about all nine types no. and all the wings and all this <laughs> and all that. But let's talk about a few specific examples just so we can get the flavor of how different right. people with different types would respond to change in their lives. One of my favorite types to talk about as an example is type 7 because there are some aspects of 7 that a lot of people can relate to easily. 7s are about joy and celebration and exhilarating experience. They want to get the most out of life. They want pleasure. They want to avoid pain. They have a tendency to skate lightly over life, which is both a talent and a trap, mm -hmm. like so many things. <laughs> In times of change, the difficult approach, the challenging approach, the trapping approach for a seven is avoidance. Sevens will do anything to avoid pain, to avoid getting into a difficult situation. They may deny that something is wrong. They may be uh, frightened of scary uncertainty and decide to have a party instead. I don't want to think about all this tough stuff. Let's just have a party. They may do drugs to escape from reality, from the changes that are coming down. Eventually, though, that path leads to problems, as we all know, dissipation and exhaustion. And they must admit that things are changing. Now they move into a new phase and they try to control their environment. They have a temptation to over-control and also to judge themselves and others, to create harsh conditions rules to create a sense of security. However, it's illusory. It doesn't really solve the problem. Still, we're dealing with not useful approaches. <laughs> <laughs> 
So those are the downsides. And the antidote for type 7 in times of change is to relax, relax. 7 integrates to 5. 5 is all about inwardly directed thought. The 7 with its outwardly directed thought needs to stop scattering around like water on a hot griddle and mm -hmm. to slow down, relax, and start thinking, start analyzing, start figuring out, well, what's really going on here? So 7s can react to change by running away, by avoiding, by having a party, by trying to control, and even eventually by running into panic and complete deterioration. Or they can relax and effortlessly figure out what to do next, which is easier said than done. I'm sure everybody's aware of that. But there is a path. There is a path. That's yeah, the whole point. Absolutely. Is even mm -hmm. though you may have patterns that right. reflect your trap, there is a path to move into a, a more integrated right. space. And if a seven becomes aware and, and knows their type and sees themselves becoming dissipated and partying too much, they don't have to try to stop. It just sort of naturally starts morphing. It starts changing and they mm -hmm. become more balanced. So another type dealing with change, let's look at type two. Now type two is the outwardly directed emotional type. One of the big things about type two is the tendency to manipulate other people through emotional games. It's definitely a trap. Under stress, twos have a temptation to deflect their own inner uncomfortable feelings by doing good things for others. I feel bad, so I'm going to help you out, and then I'll feel better about myself. And that's very much a type two thing. That's a trap. Of course, the talent on the other side of that trap is genuinely doing good things for other people and genuinely feeling good about it, but you don't do the good things in order to feel good. You do the good things because you are good. You are genuinely a good, giving, generous person. And you don't expect something in return. Expecting something in return is the trap for that kind of do-gooding. Mm -hmm. Excess giving hides their own feelings of fear or inadequacy. They don't feel good enough, so they, they do good excessively. Those feelings accumulate inside expecting to receive from others in return, eventual outbursts of accumulated anger can occur. So what's happening there is two is showing some of the worst traits of type eight, which is the disintegration point of two. So type eight is the boss, the leader, and the downside of bossy leadership is bossy leadership, <laughs> which is what eights do when they're unhealthy and what twos can do when they fall into the disintegration to eight. The antidote for type two is to look towards the integration point of four. Like a four, direct the emotional attention inward. Look inside, learn to identify and interpret our own emotions. With genuine feelings, become able to correctly sense the feelings of others and be genuinely helpful in our changing times. The talent of two comes in real handy in times of change because you become a, a giver without expecting anything in return. And of course, when you do that, karmically, you get lots in return. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to expect it because you are a genuinely good person, mm -hmm. as opposed to a manipulator who is doing good things in order to feel good about themselves. With, with type 2, we have a great example of the disintegration to 8 and the integration to 4. Type 4 is the inwardly directed emotionality, which is the direct antidote to the outwardly directed emotionality of type 2. When you direct your emotionality inward, you find meaning. You find the source, true meaning in life. Twos can lack meaning because they're all about manipulating others in order to feel better if they're in the average realm. They put the meaning on 
on the outer the other people correct. rather than their own meaning right. for that situation. Right. Yeah. So they need to learn how to find meaning inside by directing their emotions inward and truly finding the source of their own inspiration and they can become very creative at that point. One more type relating to change, type 9, which of course is the special type at the top of the Enneagram. No better or worse than any other type, but definitely special in some really interesting ways. Nines are about being and non-being. It's hard for some other types sometimes to understand point nine. Nines frequently think that they're all the types. They can't figure out what type they are because they identify with all of them. And that's very common with type nine. In the face of unpredictable outer changes, they draw back from scary stuff into a more peaceful inner world. And that's their natural tendency. The temptation is to replace the genuine perceptions of what is true with simplistic archetypal models of people in the world. And that's storytelling and feeling comfortable because of old traditions that just fit. It's like an old shoe. <laughs> A nine wants to have old shoes that fit and they're comfortable. And they want to curl up on the couch with a cozy fire and just don't pay attention to the troubles of the world. What we have here with the fire, and it's all very nice and cozy and comfortable. Of course, that's both a talent and a trap. The talent is great because in times of trouble, people do need to withdraw to cozy fires and, and to give themselves a chance to, to stop being so much and just, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And just be. Don't try to be something. Don't try to be nothing. Just be. And that's a great talent. Uh, however, that's ignoring the problems of the world. And eventually, problems have a tendency to come back and bite you. In a nine who's not dealing well, you begin to see signs of the downside of type six, which is the arrow from nine. Type six people are the triangle point about the mind, intellect. They're either connected or disconnected. And one of the traits of type six that happens in stress is they become anxious and they become suspicious and they tend to see malice where there might not be any. And a nine who is in deep trouble, will become anxious and worried and may tend to form conspiracy theories and may impute motivations that aren't really there to other people, which is definitely a downside of six and also something that can happen to nines. The antidote is to come back into the world. Instead of trying to run away from the world, come out into the world. Like a three, to be a real embodied person. The integration of nine is three. Threes are you may remember the single one independent person out in the world accomplishing and achieving. That is the antidote to nine going within and just turning into nothing, dissolving into cosmic goo. <laughs> you have to come out and shine. You have to actually make something of yourself. The beautiful thing is that for a nine, integrating to three is actually relatively effortless. It's a very natural and healthy and good feeling way to be for a nine. As a true and real being, you acknowledge selfhood, you motivate others, and you effortlessly accomplish to improve the world. And that is the upside of three and also the integration of nine, which balances the nine tendency to withdraw and to nothingness. <laughs> <laughs> so there are three examples of how the types can respond to change and can beneficially improve their situation by looking at their type, the talents of their type, and also the talents of their integration type. And not trying to be that way, but just seeing themselves as they move through life, falling into the traps, 
manifesting the talents and not criticizing or praising themselves, just to see what's happening, just see it going on. And gradually as you do that, you begin to evolve, you morph. And like bubbles rising through water, you integrate against the arrow towards your integration type and become a more complete person, a better person, someone who sees themselves and other people and the universe more clearly. Right. One of the a common phrase is awareness is the very first step. Right. And it applies here Absolutely. as well. When you're aware mm -hmm. of your type and the various dynamics and your wing and all these pieces, right. then you can look at a situation and notice and be aware of right. the tendencies that you may have naturally mm -hmm. and the tendencies that can help you lift in a certain way to more right. of an integrated space. Mm -hmm. But it all starts with noticing mm -hmm. and from there you have choice. Correct. And it's not a have-to choice, but it is a choice with some ease One once of, you're aware of it. Right. One of the things I tell people in sessions is you don't have to stop doing your traps. In fact, go ahead, trap yourself, <laughs> do it again, do it again, but see yourself doing it. Right. Do it as many times as you want, whatever it is, but see yourself doing it. Yeah. And that's the awareness piece. Right. Yes. As somebody who has studied change, my seasons of change model, I created more as a general model for everyone. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned from our conversations is that, yes, there is that model, but how each person moves through that model will be different. And what they need to focus on will be different. Right. And you and I haven't sat down and really talk that all through. I suspect we will at some point. I'm very curious to learn more mm -hmm. about the various stages of the model and how somebody from each type or type with wing would approach that. And of course that information would be very helpful to change catalysts right. who are working with clients on a regular basis right. and realizing that some people do this and other people do this and provides a little more of a, a body of knowledge that helps us in nuanced ways support mm -hmm. our clients in doing what they need to do. Right. And not making them wrong for doing it a different way than we would do it, but... That's important. Yes, but allowing them to find the grace mm -hmm. for themselves, find the path forward for themselves. I've worked with change catalysts through my career as an Enneagram teacher. One of the things I notice is that a lot of counselors, a lot of coaches have a fairly narrow way of approaching their work with their clients. And they tend to throw out clients who don't fit their model of what a client is. And some of that may be personality. It may be that a change catalyst who is, let's say, type this, may not want to work with somebody of type that because they don't understand them and they can't give them what they need. Right. The Enneagram provides a model, a scaffolding, a system where you can understand more of your clients. There are more different kinds of people that you can understand and that you can work with because you, you know the different talents and traps of the different types. And if you can learn to recognize those types, and especially if you can learn to do that intuitively, then you have a whole new set of tools. Yeah. It's, a, it's like a toolbox. Mm -hmm. I tell people there are three really important ways the Enneagram can help you. It can help you personally to understand yourself so you don't fall into the traps and you begin to manifest more and more of the miraculous talents of not only your type, but of your integration type and the further integrations around the Enneagram. 
The second way that the Enneagram is really helpful is to understand others. When you're working with others, to know what type they are, whether they're the same as you or different, gives you a key to unlocking the mystery of that other person. You have a model of that person that you didn't have before you knew the Enneagram. And that makes it possible for you to respond to them in ways that reinforce their talents and even to talk to them about the Enneagram without telling them what type they are, introduce them to the Enneagram and help them begin to see their own talents and traps. Very powerful. The third way that the Enneagram is profoundly useful to any change catalyst is to understand the world better. The whole universe reflects the Enneagram in so many different ways. If you can learn to see those manifestations, then the real world takes on a new level of depth. And you see the dynamic. Right. And you understand if you're seeing this part of the dynamic, then this is likely to be what's next, or that's what likely happened before, and it helps you build that understanding of the dynamic. The Enneagram, we've been talking about it as the personality side of the system, but there's also a process side. There is a way to look at the Enneagram shape Mm -hmm. as a description for a process and a flow. Right. And that aligns to some degree with the seasons of change and that flow through change. Mm -hmm. And there are a few points, and I want to start with those points, that really are are almost directly resonant with the seasons of change. Mm -hmm. When I first studied the seasons of change, I noticed that the point nine on the Enneagram and the space between points four and five seem to have a direct correlation to the seasons of change. The space between four and five is perhaps the most obvious. That corresponds to midwinter, where you go inside and you basically enclose yourself in a crucible and you give yourself a chance to cook. There couldn't be a more clear parallel between that spark gap between four and five, what we call the crucible gap, and the midwinter process in the seasons of change. And midwinter, I also refer to as the winter solstice. The winter solstice, yeah. Because that's Mm -hmm. where the spark of new light comes. Correct. That's how that metaphor came to be in my mind. Right. So we recognize that that point is isomorphic. It's the same point. The other point is a little bit less obvious, but when you see it, it becomes quite clear. Point nine is the point of cosmic merging, the point of perfect unity, and everything is correct and right, and there is just this one being, which is everything. Point nine corresponds to being in the flow. It corresponds to summer at the top of the seasons of change, where you're actively engaged in what you're doing, it's working, and everything is great. And there's no tension, all is well. Point nine is the starting point, and it's the destination. The cycle of the seasons of change starts there. You're, yes. you're doing fine, everything's well, and as you move into summer, you begin to reap the rewards, and you begin to realize that there's going to be a change coming. So point nine at the top. The rest of the points on the Enneagram are a little bit more difficult to relate directly to the seasons of change, but there's a way to look at it that makes some sense. And that's if you imagine that the Enneagram and the seasons of change are superimposed on each other, so that point nine at the top and points four and five align with the two places where they reflect. Now you take one of those shapes, let's say you take the Enneagram, and you turn it 90 degrees Mm -hmm. so that the top and bottom are still aligned, but the Enneagram is perpendicular to the seasons of change model. Now you have something resembling the relationship. The seasons of change is a cycle. It operates through time. 
you start at the top and you move down, you realize there's a change coming, you get comfortable with the change, you move through midwinter, begin to plan for the next spring, you move into spring, your seeds sprout, you cull the seeds, you come up with a plant or a, an idea that has potential, and you develop that and you get it out there and you start selling it and you begin to succeed and you've come around the whole cycle. That's the seasons of change in a nutshell. The Enneagram has cycles, but they don't work exactly the same way. There is a cycle from 9369. You go from cosmic unity to individualization, and then you go to 6 where you realize there are other individuals and you bring them in and form a team. And then you go back to point 9, a state of rest and security. The other points, the 1, 4, 2, 8, 5, 7, don't necessarily correspond to a temporal cycle but they correspond to aspects of the cycle that need to be brought in at various points. So for example, from point nine, we want to move to a new place. We have to think about something in advance. We have to conceptualize where we're going. We have to make a plan. We have to have an ideal inner image of what that plan will be, kind of a perfect visualization of where we're going. That's point one. Point one makes no sense if it has no meaning. The perfect visualization that we need also has to bring in some aspects of point four, which is all about meaning. So one connected to four brings meaning in and gives our one some depth. Four is no good, though. Meaning doesn't work if you're not giving it somehow. You're not contributing, donating it, giving it to the world somehow. Meaning all by itself inside of a crucible doesn't work. So we bring in some energy from point two. And so what you see, and I won't go around the whole Enneagram, but at every stage of the process, there are different aspects of the process that come into play. And the lines on the Enneagram tell us where to look and tell us how those different aspects of process are interrelated. So as you go through the cycle of the seasons of change, you can see the different flavors of the nine points coming into play around the seasons of change. And it's almost as though those nine points give us clues about where we can look to enhance the richness of our journey. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So if you're feeling a lot of four energy and it's a little uncomfortable because you're just doing too much emotional introspection. Been in winter too long. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the integration of four is point one. And what you need to do is recognize that there is a right and wrong and there's a proper way to approach things. And emotion isn't the be all to end all. There is something to be said for correctness and for proper behavior and for form and mm -hmm. for structure. Fascinating. Understanding the Enneagram gives the depth more meaning and more nuances. Mm -hmm. and It brings a whole new level of depth. Richness, right. yes. Yeah, to the whole conversation right. about change. And obviously this is a very short time that we have here. Yes. I wish I had hours to go into the great depth about how the different points influence each other and how they're reflected in the real world. When you begin to see it, it's like learning to see in a whole new way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Let's talk a little bit about the work you do and also mm -hmm. how people can find you. What is your primary work? My primary work is helping people learn how to use the Enneagram in an intuitive way. Of course, you first have to teach them the Enneagram. They have to understand the Enneagram in its basics, and there is a certain analytical approach that's necessary at the beginning especially. I like to work with people who have some basic understanding of the Enneagram and to take them to that next level. 
to help them learn how to directly perceive on an instantaneous basis, which doesn't always work, but when it does, it's amazing. That's the, the primary thrust of my work. I also work with people to help them see the Enneagram working in the world, and uh, I work with individuals and with groups. Mm -hmm. Okay. I know that you have several resources that people can tap into. Well, I have a website. It's at intuitive-enneagram.com. And we have a full introduction to the Enneagram. I call it Enneagram 101. And we'll be adding more things to that website. I've just recently uncovered a few new slants on the Enneagram that I'll be writing about soon. So there's going to be a lot of new material coming in there. There's also our retreats. Uh, people can come for one-on-one -on -one Enneagram retreats or for small groups for a day or more. There's also a, a social network for Enneagram people using the Mighty Network software. The best way to get started would be to go to intuitive-enneagram.com and start reading that's, Enneagram 101. That's really the starting point. That's a great way to start. It's a blog, so things are posted in a different order than you want to read them. Yeah. Go to the table of contents page and read them in order, and you'll get a good feeling for what my work is and for the Enneagram. Yeah, and it's very powerful. Nick has a very clear, concise way to describe things. You can get a lot of information just from mm -hmm. reading the, the pages that he's provided. Thank you for yeah. Thank uh, you. all that you've offered today. And I'll just share again to explore the resources Nick has shared today. Please visit my site at flourishasachangecatalyst.com forward slash radio. And I will include the links to Nick's resources and the Intuitive Enneagram community. And thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more ways you can flourish as a change catalyst at the growing edge. You've been listening to Change Catalysts at the Growing Edge on InspiredNewsRadio.com with Carol McClelland Fields. Tune in regularly to hear more ways you can flourish as a change catalyst.